0: Uh, I would like to thank the organisers, Jessica and and Thomas, for for the invitation. I'm happy to see also that despite what I was told about this being the last week, etc., the the turnout is is really good. Um, Okay, so let's kick off. Um, In in 1957, uh, a report by a committee established by the American Society of International Law dealt with the application of international humanitarian law law of the armed conflict, or reducing BELO, or IHL, to UN forces. It advanced the following arguments, and I'm reading an extract of the report. War is conflict between states, between units of equal legal status, whereas the United Nations, acting on behalf of the organized community of nations against an offender, has a superior legal and moral position as compared to the other party to the conflict. The committee agrees that the use of force by the United Nations to restrain aggression is of a different nature from war-making by a state. In the present circumstances, the United Nations should not feel bound by all the laws of war, but should select such of the laws of war as may seem to fit its purposes, adding such others as may be needed and rejecting those which seem incompatible with these purposes. Okay, things have... Evolved, thankfully, since then. And the clear-cut rejection of the application of IHL to human forces has been abandoned. But we see a a recurrent tendency to uh, a, a distinction between the party that has not violated use ad bellum and the party that has violated use ad bellum in the application of IHL, even in recent literature. So... The, the the difference I would say is that nowadays we have more subtle arguments pointing towards this this uh, uh, this differentiation in the application of IHL. So, for example, uh, we have an argument advanced that UN forces that are authorized to use force have been characterized as operations other than war, and so the argument goes they do not fall under the definition of an armed conflict. A the second argument. Uh, always in relation to human forces, is that they, are never, actually, they never actually become parties to a conflict. Therefore, they never, their members never become actual combatants. So all a party can do is uh, act against them, target them, when they are directly participating in hostilities. Third example, and now I'm turning to, to a concrete case, the Operation Unified Protector, we have the mandate of the operation in resolution 1973 which authorized all necessary measures in order to protect civilians and civilian population areas under threat of attack. This mandate is formulated in general terms when civilians and civilian populated areas under threat of attack uh, are under threat of attack then the states participating in operation unified protector can start bombing the forces that threaten to attack these areas. Now from the using bello perspective, in certain situations and under certain conditions, when you have military objectives inside civilian populated areas, then you may very well target these military objectives, so you may very well be obliged, forced by military necessity, to attack a civilian populated area, lato sensu, if you limit your attack in the military objective that is inside this area. So which means that the Qaddafi forces may well find, have found themselves before a situation where their attack would be legal from a jus in bello perspective because the military objective they were attacking is in a civilian populated area, but from the, the, the point of view of the mandate of the Operation Unified Protector, it would fall under a threat of attack of a civilian populated area, and then they would risk being bombed by the states participating in the Operation Unified Protector. Another example in the context of self-defense, well, the, 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 the classic example is that uh, in IHL, some actions of the belligerents may be justified under principles of military necessity and proportionality. However, the point goes, how can an aggressor justify some of its actions by invoking the military necessity whose ultimate objective is to... Realize to to to, to, um, to put into action and an aggression, which is a violation of general public international law, a violation of jus ad bellum. Alexander or or Akhelashvili, for example, frames the argument in the following terms: the very concept he says of military necessity relates to the advantage that the belligerent may derive in pursuing his campaign. And achieving the goals for which he is fighting. In the case of the aggressor, this is the reason for which it started the war, that is, the very act of aggression. The military necessity under jus in Bello is by no means a freestanding concept, but is linked to the very cause of the relevant conflict, and thus is an emanation of the causes of war under use ad bellum. This is yet, he says, another confirmation that complete separation of the two bodies of law is impossible. There cannot be two sets of rules, one of which says that the aggressor state is responsible for its aggression and the damage caused thereby, and another says that the same state is not responsible for that damage which it caused during the same aggressive war through its actions within the military necessity. So all these examples illustrate the several problems that the relations between Yusuf Bellum and Yusin Bello may raise. Do we, see, are we, do we find ourselves before cases of conflation between Yusuf Bellum and Yusin Bello in, in these cases? Do these two sets of rules contradict each other to some extent? Are they completely independent from one another as one part of the doctrine uh, supports? Or do they just mutually influence and inform each other's application? So these are the questions that lie in in the heart of today's presentation on relations between Usad Bellum and Usain Bello. Okay, let me be clear here from from the start. As passé and a bit unsexy as as it may be, I am a defender of the traditional view according to which Usad Bellum and Usain Bello are fundamentally independent from one another. This independence does not mean that there are no points of contact between them. But my view is that they do not amount to conflation. The two sets of rules never actually fuse. They do not undermine, these points of contact do not undermine the mutual independence between jus ad bellum and jus bellum. Some definitions before uh, uh, I start going to, to the essence of the argument. So by Yusat ad bellum, I mean the legal set, set of rules regulating use of force in international relations. Basically, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter Resolutions 2526 and uh, um, 3314, uh, and the two exceptions to the prohibition of the use of force, the right to self-defense and author- authorization to use force under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. By using "bello," I mean the legal sets of rules that regulate hostilities, namely the conduct of hostilities and the protection of victims in international armed conflict. So I will be speaking only about international conflicts. These rules... Uh, um, I will be referring to these rules as interchangeably as using BELO, IHL, International Humanitarian Law, etc. I exclude from the concept rules on neutrality because this is a quite distinct branch of, of rules that will has special characteristics that will not be analysed here. So uh, I will present the complexity of the relations between use at BELO and using BELO in four points. I will start by saying a few words on the independence the independence being a, a fundamental characteristic of these relations between use and and use in Belo, That's my first point. Then I will turn on questions, on, on points of contact, on questions where the two sets of rules meet. I will first deal with the material scope of application of the two sets of rules. Namely, I will compare the notion of international armed conflict on the one hand for the application of use in bello, and on the other hand, the notion of prohibition of use of force under 2 paragraph 4 of the Charter, uh, armed attack, uh, threat to peace and security, etc. My third point is on substantial rules of use ad bellum and use in bello, and mainly on the notions of necessity and proportionality. I will analyse whether use in bello influences the concept of necessity and proportionality under use ad bellum, and vice versa, whether use ad bellum influences the notion of military necessity and proportionality under in Bello, and fourthly, I will I will make some comments on uh, the uh, application of using Bello to UN authorized operations. First point: independence as the fundamental characteristic of relations between use at Bellum and using Bello. The independence here has two aspects. We we first of all we have independence of use ad bellum from use in bello, and then vice versa, we have independence of use in bello from use ad bellum. Independence of use ad bellum from use in bello means essentially that one cannot invoke violations of IHL in order to justify a resort to force that does not fall under one of the two exceptions to the prohibition of the use of force. The principle is, is stipulated in uh, the fourth preambular paragraph of the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions of nineteen seventy seven. The other way around, when we say that use in Bello is independent from use ad bellum, it means that use in bello applies equally to all belligerents, to those who have violated the prohibition of the use of force as to those who have not, to the aggressor and to the victim of aggression. This is what we call colloquially the equality of belligerents principle. So the principle is essential. Why? Because it, it assures, it ensures, the effective functioning and application of IHL for achieving its humanitarian aims. Because you can all understand, I presume, that if we subordinate the application of use in Bello to first figuring out who is the aggressor and who is the victim of aggression on the use of Bellum plane, then concretely we will never actually correctly apply using bello since usually both of the parties involved in an armed <coughs> conflict say that it's the other party who is the aggressor and <coughs> committed the violation of two paragraph four of the charter, and it's themselves who are fighting in self-defense. So, the the, the the original object and purpose of establishing the equality of belligerence principle is to ensure that IHL will be applied correct promptly and correctly to all belligerents and will not be uh, subdued by uh, other legal or even political or moral considerations as to the legality or the legitimacy of the use of force as such. So I, w- I will not say more into the, the, the sources of the quality of allegiance principle. We can come back to later in, in the question session if, if, you, if you want to. I'll just say this. The, the independence between the two sets of rules implies that the same facts, the facts constituting a conflictual situation, will have to be doubly analyzed. So will be evaluated two times. Will be evaluated once in order to find out whether use of bellum is applicable and has been respected or not. And a second time in order to evaluate whether the situation constitutes an international armed conflict and whether IHL rules have been correctly applied or not. So we are here before a parallel application of the two branches. The simultaneous applications means that concretely and logically we can have four possible outcomes. A resort to force can either be legal both from the use ad bellum and the use in bello point of view. Secondly, it can violate both use ad bellum and using in bello. Imagine an aggressor who commits a series of disproportionate attacks causing collateral damage excessive to the military advantage, etc., etc. We can have a resort to force that respects use ad bellum but violates using in bello. There we would have an, an, uh, a state acting in self-defense, for example, that commits a disproportionate attack in one, of its, uh, in one of its military operations and vice versa again a state can violate use ad bellum but respect use in bello because an aggressor even if he violates article 2 paragraph four of the charter he has decided to conduct its military operations in complete conformity with every IHL rule in the book so Turning to the material scope of application, where this parallel uh, application of use at bellum and use in bello will will be more clear, I hope. So, here, as I was saying, the facts will be doubly qualified. And what is important to to retain is that the qualification of a conflictual situation under use in bello does not ipso facto legally have... does not ipso facto have does not ipso facto have sorry, as a legal consequence that the same situation will be qualified as a violation of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter or an act of aggression or a threat to peace and security under use ad velo. Normally an armed conflict is of such uh, importance that it will both qualify as uh, uh, either prohibition of the use of force or an act of aggression or whatever and an international armed conflict. But why are the two qualifications not legally linked? It is because we can have situations that constitute international armed conflict without constituting violations of the two paragraph four of the Charter and conversely we have situations that violate article two paragraph four of the Charter without constituting international and uh, international armed conflict. So basically, we would have... A, a, I'm very bad at drawing, but it is not a very, very complicated sketch. So we would have these two intersecting circles. The a one, and the using bellon one. <laughs> so the basic number of conflictual situations find themselves in here. They both fall under the scope of application of use ad bellum and under the scope of application of use in bellum. What are the situations that violate Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter without constituting an international armed conflict? Well, first of all, threat to use of force. Because when you have threat to use of force, you do not have actual hostilities. However, in order to have an international armed conflict, you need to have a first coup de feu, a a, a first uh, actual hostile act on the part of one state towards another state. Another example that can be cited here is the prohibition to assist rebel groups in another state from uh, uh, engaging in acts of civil war. The prohibition is stated in Resolution 20, 25 of the 1970, under the principle of the prohibition of the use of force. So, what you have there is, if you are before a situation where a state assists rebels in another state in their civil war actions, without this assistance raising to the level of an overall control, then you would have a violation of the use ad bellum prohibition of the use of force. But the implication of the third state in the internal conflict that is going on in, in the state in question would not arise to would not give give rise to an international conflict because you do not uh, the, the the impact, the assistance, let's say, does not raised to the level of overall control, which is the level that is traditionally recognized as triggering the application, the, the existence of an international conflict. The other way around, what are situations that constitute international armed conflicts under use in belo, but do not constitute violations of the prohibition of the use of force? Well, there we would have uh, under the traditional uh, approach to the scope of application of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter, we would have conflicts of low intensity. So, incident, low intensity incidents. A concrete example was a plane that was a US plane that was shot down by Syria in 1983. So, a military plane, US military plane, shot down by Syria. Its pilot was captured so we're talking about one member of uh, American armed forces captured by uh, the Syrian government. He was held in captivity for something like five to six weeks, and then he was liberated. Allegedly, the, 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 the resort to force here is not as important as it needs to be in order to trigger the application of Article 2, paragraph four of the Charter. So it escapes the scope of application of Yusat bellum. However, this person was recognized as a prisoner of war, he was accorded all the rights that are stipulated by the Third Geneva Conventions, he was visited by the ICRC, etc etc. So technically speaking, there was an international armed conflict at the time between Syria and the United States. I would suggest that the same thing happened when the UK Marines were captured by Iran for something like two or three weeks uh, a few years ago, uh, or, let's say, in, in when, for example, the Turkish airplane was shot down by Syria, had there been a pilot that was captured by, by Syrian armed forces, then he would also be... would also qualify as a prisoner of war and we would also have there an international conflict between Turkey and Syria. Even if when Turkey wanted to go to NATO and trigger the application of Article 5 uh, of of NATO's uh, constitutive Mm -hmm. treaty, NATO states rejected this, this, uh, uh, this qualification. Okay. So two additional comments here. Violations of IHL can be, I'm referring now to the use ad bellum concept of threat to peace and security, breach of peace and act of aggression, as a necessary element in order to trigger the, the application of Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. So, it is interesting to, to note then, that whenever the Security Council has qualified situations as a breach of peace or as an act of aggression, they, they were always situations of international armed conflict. However, the Security Council has a large margin of appreciation when it, it, it interprets the notion of threat to peace and security, etc. And apart from that, he has never subordinated this qualification to the qualification of facts under using in Bello. I mean, he never said, we have here an international armed conflict, this is why we have a breach of peace or an act of aggression. So again, it was the, we have the same facts that for, for the point, from the point of view of the application of use at Bellum are qualified as a breach of peace and an act of aggression and from the point of view of the application of use in Bello are qualified as an international armed conflict. What is more interesting and where the link becomes more direct between the two sets of rules is that the Security Council has confirmed that in some cases he will qualify as threat to, peace, to international peace and security violations of IHL. He has done so in the authorization given to operations in Somalia in 1993. He has affirmed that he is ready to do so in general resolutions concerning protection of civilians. I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of Resolution 1296 of 2000. So here, why am I saying that the link is more direct here? It's because here it's not the facts themselves that will be taken into account in order for the situation to be qualified as a threat uh, to international peace and security. Here, the Security Council will first qualify the Act as a violation of IHL, and it is this qualification under use in bello that will trigger the application of use ad bellum and the existence of, an interna- of a threat to international peace and security. So, the link here is more direct. Why is that not a problem for the independence between use ad bellum and use in bello? Well, simply because if there is a link, it is because Security Council wants there to be one. So it is the use at bellum rules that allow this link to take place. So, in my point of, view, I mean, from my point of view, I don't see there a fundamental instance of conflation between the two branches, because the organ that is responsible for the application of use at bellum remains the, the, the maître of the situation, the, the, the chef of the situation. The master. The master, thank you, of the situation. Okay, I'm sorry for sometimes there are like French words that, that interject. But I'm, as another colleague of mine said, I'm, I'm hoping I won't do it like the Canadians and do half the speech in English and half the speech in French. But, uh, I, I mean, my French background sometimes uh, uh, gets, gets a better hand. So, the second element I wanted to, to talk to you about on that is that this relation between use of Bello and using Bello in the material scope of application of the two sets of rules is also rather direct... In another, in another point, that is the point where some notions of use ad bellum are interpreted in light of their equivalent under use in bellum. And I'm thinking principally of the notion of occupation. So occupation under use ad bellum can be an act of aggression. We find it, for example, in Resolution 3314. Now, there is no legal rule obliging us to interpret the notion of occupation under use at Bellum the same way we interpret it in order to apply use in Bellum. We could have said, for example, that occupation for the purpose of applying use at Bellum would be a stricter notion than the one we need in order to trigger the application of use in Bellum because Using Bello has a pro humanitarian object and purpose, etc., etc., which would justify a larger uh, inter- a larger scope of application of the notion of the occupation. However, yeah. practice shows that when states have interpreted the notion of occupation under use ad bellum, they have referred to the only definition that exists in. in in public international law, at least to my knowledge of occupation, that is a rule, the use in bello rule of Article 42 of the Hague Regulations. So here we have an interesting link between the two, because when we have the same notions between the two branches, then the interpretation of the notion under one branch, and typically under use ad bellum, will coordinate itself with. The, equivalent, the, the interpretation of the equivalent notion under use in bello. Okay, this concludes my second point. I'm turning now to my third point, necessity and proportionality. So, use at bello influence on, sorry, use in bello influence on the necessity and proportionality elements of use ad bello. So, this is a, a, a rather complex issue where we have, I mean, logically the independence between the two would say would imply that we will not take into account any use in rule when we try to appreciate if a resort to self-defense was necessary and proportionate because the two rules being independent and all that the thing is that and in pri- I mean legally speaking, it is so. It's not because you have a violation of IHL again that ipso facto your resort to force is unnecessary or disproportionate. You can have a resort to self-defense that is completely that respects completely necessity and proportionality uh, the necessity and proportionality requirements. But one single attack uh, uh, violates the principle of distinction. Or, for example. The state that acts in self defense has a prisoner of war camp and he tortures one prisoner of war. We have the torture of a prisoner of war, which is a grave breach of the Third Geneva Convention. Well, despite the existence of this grave breach of using bello, we will not say that this violation of using bello results in the whole operation under self defense, under the law of self defense, being unnecessary or disproportionate. So, again, there is no legal legal link between the two. However, again, logically speaking, if a resort to force in self-defense is, is composed by a great number of IHL violations, then the existence of these violations will be taken into account in the evaluation of the necessity and proportionality requirements. Why? Because it will indicate that the resort to force did not limit itself to the object and purpose of repelling an act of aggression. It will indicate that there is a punitive objective in the resort to force, purportedly uh, uh, acted under under self-defense. And why is that? Because it is difficult to justify that a whole number of civilian victims, or a whole number of disproportionate attacks, a whole number of attacks against uh, cultural objects, or whatever, was strategically necessary and proportionate in order to repel an attack. So, practice again shows that when there are a great number of violations under IHL, They serve as an element that is taken into account in the evaluation of the necessity and proportionality requirement under use ad bellum. So here, use in bellum does influence the interpretation of the notions of necessity and proportionality under use ad bellum. The other way around is simpler. Does use ad bellum influence the necessity and proportionality under use (coughs) in bellum? Will we, for example, allow a state acting in self-defense to provoke more collateral damage that will be justified under the proportionality principle because he is acting in self-defense and conversely when we say that the aggressor, because his general resort to force is a violation of public international law, cannot invoke military necessity as uh, um, the extract I was reading in the introduction purports uh, or has a more limited right to collateral damage so the, the notion of proportionality the interpretation of the notion of proportionality should be adapted in relation to the legality of the use of force under use at bellum well practice shows that this is not the case when states have acted in self-defense and each time a state acts in self-defense when they try to justify their operations under using rules, they have never at least uh, from my research they have never invoked such a preferential application of IHL rules. They have never I have never come across an official argument formulated by a state saying that we're acting under self-defense or we're acting under uh, an authorization by the Security Council, therefore, this attack, which would normally be disproportionate under use in Bello becomes proportionate because the principle of proportionality should be uh, applied to us uh, uh, in, in a larger way. For example, if you look at one of the rare documents we have on the issue, a document from the U.S. Ministry of Defense, uh, on the, uh, the first uh, Gulf War in 1991 there is a whole section on respect of IHL principles by the coalition forces that acting under the authorization of the UN Security Council but at no point will you find uh, the invocation of the use ad bellum legality of the operation in order to justify using bello operation. And what is more, I would suggest that if we subordinate necessity and proportionality under use in Bello to uh, uh, issues of use at Bello, we completely distort the necessity and proportionality, uh, the application of the principles of necessity and proportionality. And let me show you why. Okay. So, here we have a resort to use of force under self-defense. Okay? <laughs> Which means that we have to evaluate whether the elements of necessity and proportionality under use at Bellum have been respected, have been complied with. In order to evaluate these elements, as I said before, we need to take into account violation of IHL rules. So also violations of the IHL principle of proportionality, for example. Using use bello principle of proportionality. Now, if we allow use of bello to influence the interpretation of proportionality under use-in-bello, it means that where we would normally have, let's say, 15 disproportionate attacks we will now have five because the other ten are justified by the, the, the more lenient application of the principle of proportionality because the state is acting in respect to use ad bellum. These five disproportionate attacks will be taken into account in order to justify, to evaluate, whether the resort to force was necessary and proportionate under use ad bellum so, where, f- with the correct independent application of using in Bello, we would have the 15 disproportionate attacks, which would be taken into account in order to evaluate necessity and proportionality under use ad bellum, and we would conclude, probably, that the resort to force was disproportionate, for example, or not necessary, we end up with use ad bellum influencing the necessity and proportionality requirements of use in bello and then in turn reinfluencing the necessity and proportionality requirements under use ad bellum. So we would have the legality under use ad bellum which would auto-justify the resort to force, at least some aspects of the resort to force. So this ends up in a vicious circle where the legality under use ad bellum is used to justify through use in Bello there is resort to force again under use at bellum, which completely distorts the the essence of the notions of necessity and proportionality of use at bellum itself. Okay. So I would suggest that practice is in the right direction and that as far as the use ad bellum influencing the use in bellum necessity and proportionality, there we have a complete application of the equality of belligerent principle. No use ad bellum argument can be taken into account when we evaluate whether uh, an attack in itself was, um, uh, was disproportionate, let's say, under using bellum. Last point, Oper- UN authorized operation. So I will be brief here. First of all, the whole issue of these operations being qualified as operations other than war, and therefore not constituting armed conflicts. We find that, for example, in the US Law of War handbook of 2005. Well, it is an interpretation that has not been taken, first of all, has not been taken up by other military manuals. So. Uh, Visibly, other states do not subscribe to this interpretation. And secondly, military operations other than war, from a in bello perspective, do not exist. Either you have an international armed conflict, or a non-international armed conflict, for that matter, or you do not have an armed conflict at all. You do not even have war. Since 1949, and the substitution of the notion of war by the notion of armed conflict, you do not even have war in, in, from the in bello perspective. So, this whole notion I understand the, the, the political logic and, and the legitimacy implications of its use but from the point, from the point of view of applying using bellow it is, it, it is completely without any uh, legal implications second of all secondly do we adjust the mandate of an operation authorized by security council in order to comply with IHL rules. The example I mentioned earlier, Operation Unified Protector is allowed to bomb the Qadda- Qaddafi forces even when Qaddafi forces uh, act in compliance with Yusin Bello. And therefore the argument goes, shouldn't we interpret the mandate of Operation Unified Protector in light of Yusin Bello and therefore not allow these kind of, of attacks when the Qaddafi forces respect using Bello. Well, here again I would suggest the the, the independence between Yusat Bellum and Yusin Bello comes into play. The Security Council, large margin of appreciation, etc., is free to qualify whatever, almost whatever he wants to qualify as a threat to international peace and security. If he decides to limit the notion of international peace and security, of threat to international peace and security, to only to violations of IHL, then he can do so. If he judges that a situation requires that even legal acts under IHL, since they are military actions, in essence, constitute threat to peace and security, well, then they constitute threat to international peace and security, and that's that. A third point, and a final point. Do we apply, uh, uh, do we apply the notion of military advantage differently when we have a UN-authorized operation with a limited mandate. The argument goes like this. I'm referring again to Operation Unified Protective. <laughs> the mandate was protection of civilians, protection of civilian areas under threat of attack. So the argument goes like this. We have a military advantage. I mean, in IHL we have the notion of military advantage, which is a notion that helps to determine which objects constitute military objectives of Article 52 of the First Additional Protocol, which defines that military objectives are objects which by their nature, placement, use, etc., contribute effectively to military action and whose destruction or neutralization, etc., will give the attacker a concrete military advantage. So the notion of military advantage is an essential notion in order to find out which objects are military objectives. And here the argument says, well, in light of what do we we interpret this military advantage, do we find out what this military advantage is, well, normally we find this out in light of the objects of an operation. If Operation Unified Protector has as an objective, had as an objective, only the protection of civilians under threat of attack, then this means that the notion of military advantage should be interpreted in light of this objective. And so the argument goes, every action of states participating in Operation Unified Protector that goes beyond the objective strictly identified in Resolution 1973 does not offer a concrete military advantage to the operation. This argument is really appealing because it seems perfectly logical. I would suggest again that it distorts the notion of military advantage itself and the notion of military objective. Why? Because let's take the example where Operation Unified Protector attacks a military camp of the Qaddafi forces that does not threaten at all civilians in Libya, nor civilian populated areas. It is not connected, there is no connection whatsoever between the military camp that is attacked and a potential threat of attack to uh, civilians. Now, according to the argument I explained before, this attack is not covered by the military advantage and the new, improved notion, interpretation of military advantage. This means that the attack against the military camp is, in essence, an attack against a civilian objective. Which means that it is a disproportionate... Sorry, uh, an indiscriminate attack and possibly a war crime. Which leads us to qualify the attack against the military camp as an indiscriminate attack. And, at least to my view this completely distorts the notion of military objective under, under international humanitarian law. Here again, the solution finds itself, I think, in the parallel application of use at Bellum and use in Bello. If Operation Unified Protector has gone beyond its mandate and has conducted attacks that are not covered by the mandate, then these attacks are a violation of use at bello. Point la ligne, as as French say. If this attack is against a military objective or not, the fact whether this attack is against a military objective or not, will not be defined by the mandate itself when the states choose to interpret the mandate extensively or choose to go beyond the mandate, then they attribute a new military objective to their operation. Whether this new military objective... The military objective can be the regime change in Libya, the demise of Gaddafi, support to rebels, or whatever. Whether this military objective is approved by Yusuf Bello or not is irrelevant. For Yusuf Bello, it is a military objective that will be taken into account along the same lines as any other military objective will be taken into account. So we justify the actions that normally any military objective justifies and it will not change at all how we qualify specific objects for uh, the purpose of the law of targeting under using Bell. To conclude, because time flies, I would suggest then that independence is the fundamental rule in the relations between use ad bellum and use in bello use ad bellum does not under any circumstances influence the application of use in bello however there are instances where there are points of contact between use ad bellum and use in bello and whether use in bello can influence mainly the interpretation of several notions of Yusat Bellum. But fundamentally the two remain completely independent. So I would suggest that we can we can imagine the relationship between Yusat Bellum and al-Bello as the relationship between oil as the relation between oil and water. You can find you can put oil and water in the same recipients. If you if you mix it too much, then it may be difficult to distinguish between the two. But the two never actually fuse. The two fundamentally remain independent. And if one leaves them at peace, then they progressively, uh, this independence prog- progressively comes back at its full strength. Thank you very much.